I mean, I'm getting DMs from all over the world right now from people who have a very similar story, and it's this. I thought that God had failed me, mm -hmm. and I have walked away from God because I have concluded that he was unfaithful. But now I realize that he's not unfaithful. It's that I was misunderstanding the whole project. Yeah, you got the story wrong. Yes. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome back to the channel and the podcast. I am just so thankful for each of you and that uh, you decide to listen in or watch means the world to me. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by some very dear friends of mine. Each of these gentlemen have been on the podcast on several occasions. Most recently, I had Ted Kim, John Mark McMillan, and Andy Squires on back in May of 2021 where we had a conversation about re-enchantment, we had a conversation about story, and uh, today's conversation, we're going to continue to talk about some of those themes and ideas, but we're really grappling together with this question of what comes next as the secular story collapses, what comes next for people who have experienced a collapse of the Christian narrative and a collapse of the secular story what comes next for them? How do we interact with each other and engage with them? And so much more. I just wanted to say this. I don't like hyping things up. I detest hype. <laughs> but uh, this is a long conversation. And I promise you that sticking with it till the end is going to be worthwhile. Um, I, I know maybe some of you, if you see a two-hour-long conversation, maybe you make it through an hour. I promise you, you're going to want to take in every minute of it. I left uh, the conversation feeling so transformed. I, I saw new insights as we were sharing from our experiences and our vantage points and convictional locations together. I experienced this great sense of transformation. I felt a nearness to the spirit as we were talking and not just because we are friends, that certainly is a big part of it, but because of the wisdom of these men in my life, uh, I, I walked away incredibly enriched and blessed by the conversation. So I really want to encourage you, stick with it all the way to the end. Even if you feel like, yeah, I got enough of what I need from this, I promise you by the last maybe half of the conversation, some of the groundwork we laid at the beginning really translates into some really important like personal applications. And man, it's just really special. I mean, I don't want I don't want to overhype it again, but to me, it felt like a holy moment. Um, so I hope you'll stick with it to the very end. If you're not familiar with any of these gentlemen, let me just tell you a bit about each of them. Ted Kim is the senior pastor at Evanston Vineyard, which is in Illinois. He did his undergrad at the University of Chicago and has a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. John Mark McMillan is a platinum-selling songwriter and artist best known for his songs such as How He Loves, Future Past, King of My Heart, uh, which he sings with his wife Sarah, and they both reside in the Charlotte area in North Carolina. Another native charlatan, no, that's not the right word for that, and a North Carolinian uh, who joins us today is my other dear friend Andy Squires. Andy has been on, I think, probably three times before in the past, and he is a singer-songwriter as well, but he's also an author and pastor from the Charlotte area in North Carolina. He's best known probably for his song, Cherry Blossoms, 
Andy recently in 2021 released this masterful record called Poet Priest and just released a new book, a collection of essays and poems and beautiful images entitled Poet Priest Volume 1. We talk a little bit about that book together and why that book has become really, really important for people. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I'd love to hear from you in the comments of this video or in the Patreon forum that we offer for each one of these episodes. I really want to hear from you. What did you take from this? What points of agreement, disagreement did you have? We learn from each other. So thanks again for listening. Stay tuned to the very end of the conversation where you can find out a bit more about the Deep Talks Patreon community and the way that you can support this podcast and this YouTube channel to make sure that I can keep doing it uh, and keep doing podcasts without advertisement. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Man, Are you guys familiar with the um, metaphor of the elephant and the rider? I don't know if we talked about this last time or not. Jonathan Haidt. So if you picture if you picture your mind as an elephant or a rider on an elephant, um Haidt talks about how like the rider on the elephant is that rational part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. But the elephant is all of those subconscious forces, the the animalistic drives and you know, his point is like the rider can only do so much. If the elephant wants to go somewhere, the elephant's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I was, I think what I saw in your book, Andy, I'm not saying like this is the only factor, but for me, one of the factors that I found to be maybe one reason why it's been so compelling is that it's like, it's the mix of art and poetry that speaks to the elephant. And that there's like strong rhetoric there that can capture the rider at the same time, you know, like that's, that's really hard to do. I mean, I think some of the best preachers do it too, where you listen to them and it's like, it's poetry. And I think that's even like maybe one of the strengths of like the African-American tradition is that the preaching is woven in with the music. So it's totally speaking to all of it, but yeah. I was just so blown away. I think I told you this, like Mitchell or whoever else worked on the aesthetic of it. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's like, I almost didn't want to read it. <laughs> I just wanted to look at the pictures like a comic book or something. I mean, that could yeah. be one of the strengths of comic books too, as well. Yeah. Well, I, well, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, so like when the printing press shows up and people are kind of like, downgrading the written word at that point you know like and then and then when the american when or when the novel came around the novel was like looked down upon so every time a new form of communicating arises the old mm. guard always looks at it as a threat you know mm. yeah. and even when you're participating in the like i've i've been re, like i've been walking around recently going i'm literally I've stumbled into a new form of communicating to the world that is being legitimized as we speak. Like this, you know, I I was telling Adam Russell the other day, I was like, man, I think this is going to sound a little bit arrogant, but I feel like kind of first to market in a way, just to use a crass term, right? Um, But I think that 
of course, we know all of the negative side of social media, of course, like that's obvious, but there really is an, an immediacy of access. Um, and, and I think there's a hunger. I, I think that I, I think I could probably have better numbers if I was more antagonistic or more, you know, there's, there, there are, there are better formulas at growth than what I'm currently doing, but whatever it is I'm doing right now is definitely striking enough of a chord that folks are, I mean, I'm getting DMS from all over the world right now from people who have a very similar story. And it's this, I thought that God had failed me. Mm -hmm. And I have walked away from God because I have concluded that he was unfaithful. But now I realize that he's not unfaithful. It's that I was misunderstanding the whole project. Yeah, you got the story wrong. Yes. Yeah. And that has, we got a a DM from a woman in Germany last night who told us as much. And it was like, it felt weird because I feel like, oh, I, I get those old evangelical church feelings of like <laughs> saving somebody, right? Mm. And but it's it's what's happening. It's like folks are um finding their way back to Christ. And I, I would say, Andy, uh, I think the reason why the book works is not just the form, but also what you're doing with the content. Yeah, uh, because you're not trying to solve anyone's tension or trouble. Yeah, yes. um, and that's the way that I read the scriptures. Yeah, uh, and so even even when I just think about wisdom and what is actually wisdom, it feels like what you're writing in that book is wisdom. Yeah, and wisdom so, literature. Uh, it's like wisdom literature, and wisdom yeah. literature is about confronting objective reality, not solving mm. it. Mm. And, um, and that's what I feel like you're doing. And that's what I feel like we don't have very much of yeah. in the world. We have a lot of 10 ways that you can avoid trouble. Right. Or here are some right. tips. Or even the whole implausibility narrative. We have, well, we're just going to think that these things don't exist and ignore them. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like the whole premise of that, that movie on Netflix, Don't Look Up. Mm. or just look up or whatever that movie was, which was really interesting to me, like the absurdist like premise that there is actually like this comet hurtling toward earth that people are just going to blatantly ignore. Um, but that's what we do, right? We like don't actually go through these things, um, but wisdom helps us do, to do that. And so there's like very few things out there that actually say the thing that you're saying, Andy. And so I think the form is important because it's beautiful. Um, and yeah. form is important because beautiful points us to beyond. And so you must say that the, 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 the book or the magazine or whatever thing that it is, um, if it were in a different form, it wouldn't have the same kind of impact. Mm. But then you also have to say that if you had different content, it wouldn't have the same sure. impact. If it was strident or if it was glib yeah. or if it was a little bit too, we're going to yeah. solve this for you and give you yeah. Like, you know, that, that quotation that I put in the, in the text thread, which is like the wise men of old who want to face up to objective reality need wisdom, Sophia. But the, the modern man um, is trying to bend reality to their own wishes. And so they're looking for technique. 
There's no technique in your in your Instagram posts. These are they're just like bam, here it is. This is what reality is, and it's a perspective on it, which is what I think James is talking about in James one. Um, the wisdom that you get, the wisdom that you lack in trouble is perspective, heavenly perspective or kingdom bound perspective or whatever that looks like. So that's why I think that it works. And that's why um, I feel the evangelical Holy Spirit vibes when I'm reading the Christ is at my table. Um, so I read that one thing that just like, just smacked me. Uh, it's kind of like metaphorically just slapped me about the chaos at my table, you know? Um, and, uh, and you didn't solve that. <laughs> you just gave me perspective. So, um, anyway, that's why I think the book is really powerful, and I'm glad you're writing a new one. Um, yeah. So thank you, Andy. Mm. <laughs> good, times. good times. I love it. I have I have so many things that I could say about it. I just uh, are we <laughs> taken away from the podcast? No, no, no this is this great. It, it actually, I actually see points of connection. So go ahead and yeah. share, John Mark. Yeah, yeah. So I think this relates to Andy and what he's doing. And also, I think, relates to some of the topics that maybe you wanted to tackle. But I think that people are looking for themselves. You know, and you, you walk in a church and you're like, am I here? Is this me? Am I here? You know, like... Mm. And and what I mean by looking for maybe what I mean by looking for themselves is um, people want to people look for other people. When you see a um, you look in an electrical outlet, and you see what do you see? You see two eyes and a mouth. When you look into the clouds, you look into the moon because we're just hardwired to look for other people, right? We're hardwired to look for a relationship. And I think Andy, what you're doing in your in, in, in your essays and in your book is you're offering them a person, but you're offering them yourself, but really you're offering themselves back to them. Mm-hmm. And this is one, this is the issue is the promises we make to get people into church are often the, th- the reasons they leave because right. we oversell and we under deliver and we create this idea of faith that is an oversimplified story. And so, Ted, I've been thinking about you a lot. I've been coming up with this equation in my head, right? And I wanted to run it past you at some point. And I think it is relevant to this conversation is a story. As we're talking about reenchantment, I'm trying to not dumb it down. But Einstein said, if you can't explain something to a six-year-old, then you don't know it yourself. And so my challenge recently is to take these big ideas. So I don't agree with that 100%. And I don't think he agreed with that 100%. But there's something there. There is a genius to distilling things. And so I'm trying really hard to distill some of these big ideas I have into smaller equations. I've decided that reenchantment is really, really super connected to story. Because in one sense, they're the same thing. And I'm going to try and explain. And this, I promise this relates to what I think Andy is doing, is that story is problem plus proposition equals outcome. That's a story. And the elephant that you're talking about, Paul, is hardwired to uh, chase that. That's why a horror movie is like, oh, this is awful, but I got to see how it ends. That's why I like a rom-com. You're like, this is so cheesy, but I got to know if they end up together because... It's the survival information that is built into problem plus proposition equals outcome, right? It's the survival information that the elephant 
is obsessed with. And that's why every great tweet, I mean, by great, I just mean well-performing tweet. That's why the worst tweets perform the best because either they're causing the problem or they are a problem or they're a proposition, you know, <laughs> so because you're like, it's, you know, it's the proverbial train wreck. Like I gotta see how this ends. This is God, this is awful. It's so bad. The elephant is like, I got to see how this ends. So at very least I don't end up like this. Right. Yeah. And so Andy probably doesn't realize it, or I bet he actually does, but he's problem plus proposition equals outcome with every headline that he posts. And, and so you have problem plus proposition equals outcome. That's the definition of story, right? And I've sort of decided to like, you know, we're obsessed with these stories, but I've decided that there is a type of story that does a different thing. There's a type of story that doesn't just uh, speak to your elephant and, and, and tempt you with survival information. There's another type of story that tells you that survival is a good idea to begin with, or even tells you that there is a reason that is worth not surviving for. And I'm calling this, Ted, because <laughs> we've had a similar conversation. I'm calling the second story beauty, right? Beauty is the story on the other side of the data, right? And beauty, something that's beautiful isn't necessarily pretty. The gospel is beautiful and not pretty. The most beautiful movies are often diff hard to watch, right? Beautiful stories are not always pretty. So I'm not talking about beauty in the sense of um, something that's pretty. But beauty, in my opinion, and then, once again, I'm just coming up with this myself. I think Ted's got like 12 things about this. But I... I, I'm just coming up with this myself, but beauty is the story that speaks to you from beyond the data, right? Mm -hmm. Beauty is the thing beyond, you know, and even when you dig into it in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and nothing was created. There wasn't, you know, like to me, that is the story of beauty. That is the thing beyond the thing that's calling you into the story not just to give you some sort of survival information. So it's easy with a tweet, with a marketing tweet. You will look better if you do this. Your friends will like you more if you do this. You will not die if you accept this particular proposition. You, you know, this is very basic. And that's how we get people into church. The problem is they sit there and they realize that like the survival information is not quite working for me here. In fact, I might not be surviving. And we fail oftentimes to give people the, to lead people to the beauty or the God or the spirit on the other side of the data, which is that like, we're all dying, but guess what? We get to do it together. We get to love one another in it. And there is the redemption and there is the story that is bigger than the survival narrative that um, entices the elephant to walk into the room. Well, what do you make, John Mark, then? Like, the first thing that comes to mind, I know you called on Ted, but so I'm yeah. going to let Ted respond because you guys have already had some chats about this. But the first thing I think of is how radical this picture is in John's revelation of a slain lamb enthroned as ruler of the cosmos. Mm. Like, if there's this really crazy claim that Christians have been making for quite some time, followers of the way of Jesus... That's like, it's tapping into a degree of what you're saying about this survival story. Yeah. Um, and that we've got something wrong about it. 
Yeah. Like there's something fundamentally disorienting or we, we are our drives, our appetites, the, the directions the elephant would want to go. There's something, whether we want to call it original sin or the, the evolutionary instincts we've created which, or inherited, which tend to make us respond to the survival part of the story in a wrong direction. Like we move in the wrong places. And I don't know what to make because I see that I see that picture of John and the thing that always came to my mind, I think even when I was younger, it was like, man, don't we, wouldn't it make more sense that whoever killed the lamb is really in charge? Hmm. Like that seems to be the story we, we always wrestle with. I mean, yep. anyways, I, I had to throw that in right away. Um, what do you make of that, John Mark or Ted or Andy? Let me say something real quick. So we talk about the lamb that was slain and we're talking about the story behind the story or the beauty or the thing behind the data or the thing that um, asks us uh, or a thing that tells us that survival is a good idea or the thing that tells us that there is a thing worth not surviving to continue, you know, your children, you know, lay your yeah, life, yeah. right. Um, or, 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 or Jesus on the cross. Right. So the, I think, and there's number, and I'm, 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 you know, I didn't go to theology school. I didn't even go to college, but, and I'm not as well read as any of you guys, but from a artistic standpoint, I see this idea of the lamb that was slain as God saying, Hey, I'm in this with you guys, you know, like, especially mm, to that group of people at that time, they saw a lot of things slain. They saw a lot of people slain. They saw a lot of things die. We don't see things die. I don't even see my food die, yeah, you know, yeah. unless I'm eating sushi at a really awesome place and I watch them kill it in front of me. Just yeah, people probably saw more crucifixions yeah. in real life than we saw slaughtering of the food that we eat every day. Your kids would go to market and see human beings hanging from trees. Like that was part of normal life. And then when, by the time you're a teenager, you are either fighting or dying, you know, with your tribe of people. And so to me, like, in one sense, the way God wins is by saying, you know, there is something better than just surviving. And what's better than surviving is, for lack of a better term, relationship. You know, in the charismatic world, we call it relationship. We call it intimacy. We call it experiential. But, you know, but I think God wins in a sense in a number of ways, maybe, but maybe in one way, God wins by saying like, I'm part of this equation and I always have been like, I've been dying with you all this time. I'm suffering with you all this time, you know, and maybe that's part of the way the slain lamb wins, you know, it's maybe because, and the, the funny thing is everyone Jesus raised from the dead um, eventually died again, you know, and so there's no, there's no getting away from suffering, you know, but there is a beauty. Once again, I mean that in the real sense and in my, like in the way that I just created here with my new terminology that I'm my equation <laughs> and in my equation, there's a beauty to doing that with other people. And I'll say this, and maybe this is um, way off, but, and I think this goes back to why people are so connected to Andy's essays is that, um, you know how when you uh, go through something that's awful, like awful, absolutely awful, 
Um, and I'm going to make something slightly less awful, but have you ever like been on a trip and it was terrible? It was brutal. It didn't work out. You know, you were angry. And, and then 10 years later, or even five years later, maybe a couple years later, you talk to those same people. And what is the thing that binds you together as you talk about how terrible it was and you laugh, you <laughs> laugh and you laugh and you laugh. We just had a friend die of COVID. I went to the memorial and I have mixed feelings about memorials and funerals and things uh, for one, because they're really, really sad and it's really awful. I hate losing people. It's, you know, and grief is difficult, but there were so many people there that I love. There was a weird or an odd joy. I don't want to even want to use the word joy. It's a hard, cause I don't in any one any way want to downplay how sad and, and, and uh, difficult this was, but there was something about being together with this group of people all mourning for this one person that there was something beautiful about that and meaningful in that. Is there something about suffering together? And when Andy writes things about his grandmother dying, I was like, God, I got both my grandmothers died. And I feel the same way. This is what I'm saying about people are looking for themselves. And Andy's able to throw that out in a way where people see themselves and what he's saying and are able to listen to what he has to say because they're able to relate. They feel in relationship, you know, because everyone loses a grandmother and everybody, if you're smart or if you're a decent human being, wishes you could go back and be young again and sit down and ask them all the questions that you didn't ask because you're too young and stupid to ask. I think everybody feels that way. But few people say it. And um, anyway, I'm talking way too much. I'm the dumbest guy in the room. No, that's false. <laughs> that's false. Definitely false. <laughs> what do you guys think? I don't. I took a very artistic approach to the the slain lamb. No, if I hear what you're saying, because I've been I'm chewing on it a bit. There's something about our the stories that we live into the stories that we follow. If the cross is not an element of the story, and I don't mean just like someone that's signed off on a doctrine contract, but I mean like following the pattern of the cross, Jesus, the prototype of a new creation. If that's not part of the story, the story breaks down. It's not as beautiful. It's not true. It's not good. And in fact, it's dysfunctional. So like you're at this funeral for a friend. And yet while there's brokenness all around you, the cross was involved in their story. And there's something beautiful about that, that you're, you're able to cling to with your friends, even in the midst of something that still doesn't make sense. I think like, Andy, you were, I saw you joking on Twitter about how your wife tells you you always preach the same sermon over and over. <laughs> and that's that's funny to say, but like like she's right and there's nothing wrong with it because I see what you wrestle with. And, and, and Ted, you're a preacher. I know you're wrestling with this too. It's like, how does the cross become part of every story? Is that fair to say, Andy? Like, is that really what you're looking for? Like in, in the story of death and loss and the story of living off of food stamps and the story of enjoying a good bottle of wine with your wife on your anniversary, 
where do we see the beauty of that that cruciform pattern like the the thing that makes the story true and good and beautiful i don't know is that what you you try to find in your language what are you searching for and ted like when you when you preach or when you write like what is it that you're searching for in the way you want to tell the story about god and life and our place in it all you go ted Well, the only thing that I, w- I would say to that, and I have a lot of lot of thoughts, uh, is is kind of like what Balthazar, who wrote uh, seven volumes on beauty, said about death: only in Christ is death beautiful. There's you know, only is the grotesque nature of a person actually ending their time on Earth, um, and however way that that would happen, however tragic or however beautiful or whatever, only in 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 Christ, and this is. This is part of the reason why I profoundly believe, you know, um, that there is the possibility um, that even in Christ, he can take something as as um, tragic and as, um, I don't know, as uh, devastating as death and make it something that actually is beautiful in the sense that you were talking about, John Mark, in that it is sort of like the story beyond the data. Um, it's really interesting talking about story. Um, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of literary criticism written about what story actually is. Um, and when you talk about um, the story of reenchantment being like simple, um, I think I, I really like that because simple doesn't, doesn't exclude inscrutability or mystery. Um, in fact, the more simply we say something, uh, the more room we leave. <laughs> you know, um, the, when we start to like uh, actually like start to burden something, or a concept or an idea, with too much explanation, um, we weigh it down um, from kind of the lightness it should have because of the inscrutability of it. And so, I really like that. I really like thinking about that. And I also like beauty because I think that beauty makes sense of evil. Um, in a way that logic or science or technique or any of these technology, they don't really make sense of evil, but I think uh, beauty does. Um, because beauty can be uh, subject to violence. Uh, beauty can be um, absconded with. Beauty can be kidnapped. Beauty can be tortured. Beauty... Uh, beauty can be twisted, you know, um, and also uh, we, when we talk about God and beautiful God, we must talk about the ugliness that also is in this world. So just by virtue of naming that there is a plausible narrative for beauty in the world, we also have to start thinking about ugliness and what actually is ugliness. Well, ugliness is actually evil. Um, and the reason why we, 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 uh, the reason why we, are almost allergic to talking about these narratives of beauty, I think is because we don't have like a good sense of what actually evil is. In fact, um, that's part of the, 
myth of secularity, right? Everything exists in the now. There's nothing that will be in the thereafter or hereafter. I mean, that's part of what secularity means. And so everything that we must squeeze out of this existence in terms of meaning must happen in the next 80 years or the next 40 or the next 30 or whatever. And so then we must name things in an inauthentic, in a false way, things as good when they're not actually good. And then sometimes we think things are beautiful that aren't beautiful. Um, And then we find out later as we grow wiser that they're ugly. And then we realize maybe I don't have the capacity to recognize what actual beauty is. Um, And so I guess it's a long roundabout way of saying, I think that sort of the thing that uh, Bonhoeffer said, which is sort of like beauty will save the world. Um, I think actually as people who teach and people who write and people who create uh, humanities or whatever artwork in the world, we must reckon with beauty. Um, And we must do it in a way that's not glib because we must also reckon with ugliness because it's not a good story if it doesn't create, if there's like really big plot holes, right? So there's no way for us to actually reckon with ugliness. Um, then it just becomes another one of those sort of glib stories that we dump when we are disappointed or have tragedy. Filled um, with sentimentalities. So, right. It's sentimentality or even like worse, uh, we live in the past in nostalgia. Mm. And so then we, we paint all of our past memories um, with the kind of fictive brush that makes us half human. We cannot acknowledge the ugliness that has come out of us or that we have experienced. Um, And then our lives are just like subhuman, you know, because we can't actually turn really, really, really turn um, to the beautiful. And, And I understand that the turning to the beautiful is actually an act of repentance. It's an act of leaving our old way and taking up a new one. Um, and to put it in the story context, John Mark, it's the act of saying the story of science will not do. I'm going to leave it behind. The story of meta survival uh, will not do. And I'm going to leave it behind. I'm not going to choose to live in that story, which partners with cosmic sin and death. And instead, I'm going to choose to live in this other story that's simple, simple enough for my four-year-old to understand it, but so inscrutable and so expansive and so elastic that it can hold the intellect of the entire history of humankind, you know? Um, so that's how, so I really like it. I like simple. I like it. But I like that it's roomy. And, and in some ways, I'm going back to Andy, this, this is not like a doxology on Andy necessarily, which God knows I'd be the first to be allergic to. Um, but Andy leaves room in his narrative. Can we please leave some room in the narrative for people to do some thinking on their own, for people to actually have a little bit of imagination? And because, hey, when we're talking about beauty, we also have to talk about imagination, right? And that's the, that's the other thing. If you're a secular person, um, your imagination is going to be so small because it's going to be constrained by your earthly, earth, earthbound existence for, you know, whatever you've seen in the past, whatever you will see in the future. And if, 
you're one of the rarer people that actually read and actually even rarer people that read history. Maybe you'll have some concept for how we got here. You know, um, I just think, you know, like as we're, as we're sitting here, we need to have some, some more ballast, you know, to the way that we think about our existence, you know, um, and we need to have room. And when, and in that room, I think the roominess comes from having the kind of imagination that the Apostle Paul talks about. Imagination that's furnished by things that are fantastical, that are miraculous, um, that don't actually make total sense. But actually, when you experience them, are the most meaningful things that you could ever experience in your life. A person getting healed, the blind seeing, you know, a person actually like um, having a change of heart. Um, which might be the most miraculous thing of all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so imagination is a part of that too. I mean, our imaginations are so weighed down by anxiety. They're so weighed down by all the doomsday scenarios that just sort of like exist in the world, right? I mean, it's like, that's like what we like feed our, our imaginations on. But I think Christ offers us a better way. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it is, it is repentance, right? So we turn away from the vain imaginations of the world, then we turn toward the divine imagination that can be furnished by the beauty of the fantastical things that only the life and the resurrection and the death of Jesus can afford us. So that's maybe how I think about it. Yeah, no, that's great. I have to say, I have to share a quick something that's always stuck with me before um, I want Andy to share for a bit. And there's this story that Herbie Hancock told about Miles Davis, one of the best instructions Miles Davis gave him for musical playing was you have to leave room for the imagination. You can't take up all the notes. You have to leave space in your music for the imagination to fill in possible notes itself. And you guys all know that you guys have all been musicians. You guys all are still musicians. And you know that there's like a, there's a busyness. There's an over, there's an overplaying that doesn't leave room for that sort of space that you're talking about ted andy what what's been what's been percolating in use we've been doing well, all the talking just i want to to take a leap off of ted's um balthazar uh quote about death is only beautiful in christ and and i would say that a glass of wine is the same way you you because because I've I've been I've been thinking a lot about what my project is whether it's in my preaching ministry my writing whatever what what is the thing that I'm getting I'm trying to lead people to and I feel it's very primitive like I feel I'm actually advancing a resistance against modern modernity if not post modernity and I feel in a sense like the conversation that I'm having with people is very primitive I. I feel like one of the things that I'm saying on a constant basis is that whether you know it or not, you need a God. Like I actually have concluded that people need, they not only need a God, they need to know that they need to a God or they need at least the acknowledgement of that. You know, um, I recently heard uh, Jordan Peterson conversation with Stephen Fry, which was so interesting to me because um, uh what the two of them concluded was that uh <clears throat> atheists who work in social sciences do much better in the world than atheists who work in the arts 
because um well well here never mind all that i would say this that 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 the that there's this fair critique about evangelicalism uh where there there's a shallowness a glibness associated with evangelical aesthetics right and so there's been this jettisoning of of that aesthetic i mean We don't need to give a history of that, but we know enough people that have been walking towards something else, right? Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is that in, in the critique of the evangelical aesthetic, what, what some of us Christians did was we, we thought, oh, well, the church is lame. The way they talk about life is stupid. I'm going to go over here into the secular world because that's where all the depth is. And, and I appreciate, Ted, what you're saying about that imagination within the secular world. It is often as vacuous as the evangelical imagination is, you know? So <clears throat> those, those two worlds seem to be at odds with each other. And I, I feel like whether I preach or whether I write or whether I'm doing music, my main aim is to is is to is to present reality the way that i see jesus presenting it in the in the text of the gospel you know um we were having this conversation around the dinner table recently with our family and and i think one of my older kids was asking me the question dad is was Jesus ever humorous? Was he ever funny? And I'm not sufficient enough of a biblical scholar to be able to rattle stuff off about the humor of the New Testament. But, you know, Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite writers. And the reason why he's, he's just got this very gloomy take about the world, but I see Cormac McCarthy riffing on Jesus so often. So like Jesus is having this conversation in, with these religious people. And he's like talking about this current event that happened down the road, the tower of Siloam that, that falls on all of these people. Oh, you think, you think that, that this tower fell on these people because they were not righteous like you and and Jesus totally leaves everybody in the dust. He's like, nope, towers fall, people get smashed. <laughs> and he doesn't go backwards to explain the metaphysics of that. He's he's it's like this dark humor, it's this, it's the slanted way of presenting um reality. That uh, what 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 is so fascinating to me is, uh, I mean, Ted said this really nice thing to me the other day. He's like, Andy, you know what you're what sets you apart with the way you communicate is that you're free. You're just free to say things, and I don't often think of myself that way because I actually feel like I'm building on the biblical tradition. I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of the text, so I see things from from. Matthew to Revelation, where like if you really read them and 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 took the implications into yourself, 
Man, it gives the artist all kinds of permission. It gives the theologian all kinds of permission to, to speak and paint and write in, you know, the full expression of Cormac McCarthy or whoever. Um, now, now I would, I would add this, like one of the things that I have to check myself uh, is that I, there is a philosophy of despair that came in at some point within, uh, I, I couldn't tell you when, when it happened, but I would say that I have to make sure that I don't go swimming in those waters. Uh, yeah. Because, because, um, I, I heard somebody say, I heard Carlos Ayers say this in a lecture recently. He says, uh, <laughs> Lent, you, 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 can, you can view the world as if Lent has triumph over carnival, you know, and, and I don't want to live there, you know. Hmm. And so I, I feel like I'm always working to temper my tendency towards the dark side of the force, you know, and um, anyway, it's good. It's good self-awareness though, to be able to see that and to have people in your life, like your wife, or, yeah. you know, all of our wives that are like, yes, you have this propensity towards this and to be able to, to make sure that we're not projecting on yes. the world that our particular experience is the totality of the story. And it's going to function for everybody the same way. Yeah. That's, that's, that's totally deficient. Oh, well, wanted- well, let, let me, let me land this thought. is that this is going to sound very primitive and very distinctly Christian, but I have recently landed on this, this idea that I'm a Christian. Like I, like that's my place in the world. And so if somebody were to ask me, Andy, what are you doing with your life? I, I am trying to persuade people to stay with Christ. I I am actually working on that. And the reason why I'm working on that is because I see the alternatives to that wreaking havoc Mm. on people's lives. Mm. Like there are true outcomes to um, shamanistic journeys and, 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 and free sexual expression and all of those kinds of things, all, all of the, all of the hits that the, evangelical church has taken and i and i and i realized i was listening to some gospel radio preacher on the radio yesterday and he was talking in a way like i was like man i kind of agree with everything you're saying but the way you're saying it is terrible and this aesthetic needs to be burned to the ground (laughs) but you and i are on the same wavelength (laughs) sorry no that's good yeah. Well, that's great because uh, this is really where I wanted to head in our conversation together. Because last time we were talking about reenchantment, we were talking about the way that the story has not worked for people that um, have lived in the secular story. We've been talking now in part about both those that have inhabited a particular Christian story and are finding that it's not coherent. But there's also what you've just brought up, Andy, this very real thing that we know, especially in our age demographic, of people who have also left that story. They've left 
variations of the Christian story. They've left Christian community because they found that what they inhabited was not coherent. And then they went into experimenting with another story. We could say this is the story of secularity. This is the story of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what I'm seeing now, guys, and this is really, I want to pick your brain as well. I'm seeing the collapse of that story, the story of the secular age. And I'm seeing more and more people coming face to face with this story. I, I tagged you guys on Twitter in this song that somebody had shared with me. Incredibly dark, very much like a Gen Z aesthetic, which like I felt really like an old millennial. I know we got a couple Gen Xers here too. But the content of the song, I was like, whoa, this is, you know, in the Nietzsche's parable of the madman, the madman comes into the town square saying God is dead and nobody has the capacity to hear him. And then he actually goes to a church and brings a dirge for the death of God, has a funeral for him. I feel like we're in this moment where we've moved beyond the death of God moment. And we are now, Ted, you brought this up last time and I can't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's that like the secular myth has been, there's this neutral space. There's this godless space that people can inhabit. And we all knew that that was a lie. Like we knew that. But I think in the broader cultural moment in America, among people our age and younger, that lie is being disclosed. The apocalypse is happening. There's like an unveiling happening where this story is not one that can provide meaning or a coherent purpose or significance to my life. It's collapsing. And in the song that I tagged you guys in, the gal was singing about how like, you know, she was raised by white scientists, you know, it's, it's very much like a, a, like a lament of Silicon Valley life. Right. Like in a lot of ways, I felt like Silicon Valley kind of became the Vatican <laughs> of the secular age. And people are like, this isn't working. It's the longing for transcendence, like the imminent frame can't hold it all. And so what I'm curious is like, are you guys seeing this too? Are you encountering people, whether as a pastor, John Mark, you're all like the kinds of people that would come to your shows as a musician and as a singer and songwriter, like you've talked about this before. There's obviously people that are still like inhabiting the Christian story that come to your shows, but there's also people when they hear their, your music, they get haunted buy it you know they're like like you sing about they're they're looking they're stuck in that place between the thunder and the lightning looking for god even if they don't know that it's god and so what are you guys seeing like are you experiencing or encountering people in your life or are you seeing this trend i i feel like you guys are all you guys are on this bleeding edge of culture that you're seeing it you have foresight you and I want you to take this in the best way possible, but you guys are all like the madman in Nietzsche's parable. Like, I believe it. You guys are the kinds of people that go into the town square and you're not saying God is dead, right? But Nietzsche was right. Like the madman, his time had come too soon and they didn't see it for another 40, 50 years. And then you got two great wars and then nihilism takes its hold on Western thought. But the madman was a little too soon. And that's why he looked like he was mad. I feel like you guys are my madmen here. <laughs> so what are you seeing? Anybody can jump in. Are you seeing more and more people 
like the secular story collapsing, what do you think comes next? Whoa. I, I have a kind of a simple answer. I, let me just throw this out there before Ted and Andy get super complex, which I'm pumped to hear what they have to say. But um, I, uh, I've recently started noticing with my friends this sort of uh, this uh, division, if you can imagine, you know, that uh, people in this day and age would be divided about anything. Um, and, and I like the, the, the thing that brought me back to the Lord um, was, was very simple. I decided, what do I know? What do I really know that I know? There's a lot that I don't know, but here's what I know is number one, I am, I've been obsessed with God since I was a kid. I've been obsessed with the powers that led to my existence since I was a kid. And number two, I've been obsessed with other human beings ever since I was a kid, just absolutely obsessed with people. And I realized like um, the two pillars of Christianity, love God and love your neighbor. I was like, I've been obsessed with those my entire life. And then I built on that. So I'm not saying that's my only connection to Christianity. I, I hope you've heard my music and heard me speak. But to me, that was the thing that tethered me in my sort of darkest moments, right? And I've realized something. And I, I hate using these constructs, but I don't have better words for these. But I have friends who, for lack of a better term, um, you know, uh, we'll call them are more conservative and for lack of a better term, we'll call some more progressive uh, though. You know, like I said, I don't really like, I don't really get into either one of those sort of constructs, but it's the terminology I have at the moment. Right. And it seems like on the conservative end, the extreme end. Um, and once again, I'm talking more about extremes and most people are in the middle and they lean one way or the other, but on the, on the extreme conservative end, they've almost taken the first commandment of Jesus, love God. And, and totally forgotten about the second commandment or almost uh, pursued the commandment number one at detriment to the second commandment. And then I see my, my more progressive Christian friends have sort of like walked away from the first commandment of God and have given themselves wholeheartedly to justice and to action and to protest and given themselves to the second commandment. And almost totally forgot the first. And I'm talking about these are people that I know and not things that I'm assuming. Like I've got several friends who are like, yeah, I, I love Jesus because I love people. But the God part of it is irrelevant to me. Like God isn't, doesn't matter. The, the loving people side is great. Then my conservative friends, and you talk to them about Jesus being on the throne and God on the throne. And we're going to do X, Y, Z. And I've even had some talk about like, if it comes to violence to stand up for the kingdom of God, it comes to violence, you know? And I'm like, you know, so I see this separation where one group is taking the one, and I, I don't think they're two different commands. I think they're one and the same. But yeah, they, I think Jesus one, explicitly said that. Yes. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting to me how you take one and or take the other. And and it's easy for to to explain why the, the first one feels weird to me. Like you know, if you can't love people, then what are you doing? How do you love Jesus if you can't love people? But the second one is a little bit more of a difficult sell, you know, at least in my experience. Right, we're going to love people and forget about this whole God idea. But as I've gone down the the pipe with it, you know, I, 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 I've started to think that um, you the reason you can't do num it's it's obvious why you can't do number one without doing number two, at least if you take scripture seriously. You know, that's obvious. What's a little bit less obvious at times is why you need number one to do number two, right? Why you need um, um, 
to love God in order to love your neighbor. And I know atheists who are very loving and fairly joyful, happy people, you know, and they're pretty loving people. So I'm not saying that you have to have a religion or a God story in order to love other people. But in my opinion, uh, the definition of what it means to love starts to slip away. And I see this with my super progressive Christian friends um, to where all of a sudden the, they start to get really angry at the enemy and they see no problem doing violence towards people who don't agree with them. Mm. Right. And so to me, when you part the waters and so you have a survival story on one side, which is love people, help people live, help them live good Have the survival story. But if you take the survival story without the beauty story, which is the God story, which gives meaning and actually weight, you know, God gives us a reason to survive. God gives us a reason to love our neighbor. Otherwise, we sort of come up with our own definitions and they seem to um, disintegrate very, very quickly. Yeah, we don't know what the shape of love yeah. looks like. Yeah. Like we love because he first loved us. This has to provide the confines so that we can go and say to somebody, well, hey, I know you're against like fascism, but you probably shouldn't be punching people on the streets or throwing bricks through businesses' windows and all these other things, right? Yeah. Totally. But even 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 just framing what you just said, John Mark, um, in the sort of beauty narrative. Um, so uh, I think in general, when you know, the, uh, theological aesthetics talks about beauty, it talks about it like in sort of three different arenas, right? The first arena being like beauty is an attribute of God. So when you're talking about beauty, you're talking about it as the doctrine of God, right? Um, but then the second aspect is the beauty of creation. So. So then that's the, I mean, it's a doctrine of how God made man in his image and how God created a beautiful, good earth. And so how does actually that, how is actually that beauty communicated to people? How is it actually refracted to people? If you lose the second part of the beauty narrative, um, then there's, then you don't have the third part, which is the encounter of beauty. So first, first part is the doctrine of God. Second part is the doctrine of creation. The third part is the doctrine of or the encounter, how do we actually encounter it? And so then all of a sudden, if beauty becomes collapsed into divine, and there's actually no way to experience it or to encounter it, it actually is really bad news, you know? Um, mm. And so even that story that you're talking about of loving God and loving people, um, how do those two things actually hang together? Well, running that through the beauty frame, it doesn't make any sense if you have one without the other. Or if you have, like, say, the second part without the first part, then what you do is you make people into demons. You know, you create, you make things into things that you you actually place a burden on a human or on a thing that it cannot bear, which is to be utterly faithful and true and to never fail you and never disappoint you. I mean, that is just a burden that no human, no person, no system, no institution. No thing in all of creation can actually fully bear it. It needs to be actually sustained by something, um, which as a, as a Christian, as a profound believer, I would say everything hangs on the sustaining, life-giving, gracious power of God through his son, Jesus. And so, I mean, I like what you're saying there makes a whole lot of sense to me. And, and it feels like actually like really good news if we can frame it um, in sort of that aesthetic in an aesthetic fashion. Um, and 
Paul, I will say this one thing about post-secularity. Um, as a pastor, um, as a pastor who now is, you know, like our church is becoming more hospitable with the college students, including students from elite universities and whatnot. I would say post-secularity is here and it's here to stay. And here's the way, here's the challenge that it poses to us. I think this is my, this is just sort of my take on it. If transcendence is actually not restricted to sacred spaces and can be found in all sorts of other spaces, you know, what's the value of church? Yeah. That's the question that, that I feel like I am constantly sort of like kind of wrestling with, or can't I do church with the people that are like my dearest friends and colleagues or, you know, whatever, right? Like, what is the value of actually, what's our ecclesiology? Like I listened to, for a while, I was going down this rabbit trail of the radical orthodoxy people influenced by continental philosophy. I thought, wow, these guys are actually going to present a plausible solution for people who are like kind of rationally struggling with what it means to actually have a God and to believe in him and to love him, right? And so then I started listening to some podcasts where they were interviewed. And I remember one of them, one of like that, so there's like three people that are really like responsible in, in, in that swirl for like the birth of radical orthodoxy, which sort of came out of uh, Cambridge and Who are and they, the Ted, UK. for people listening? So like, yeah, Millbank, Catherine Pickstock, Graham Ward, those guys. Um, so, you know, when it comes to like, what does it look like to have, for the church to actually have presence in the world, which is kind of like the same question. What's the value of church? These guys were answering it like, well, wait, you know, we've got a solution. So you have the Anabaptists with Stanley Harawas and Yoder, and they're saying, well, the, the church ought to be like the we ought to bunker ourselves in against the world or whatever, you know, and then you have like the progressives, you know, that are kind of like high social agendas or engagement with the world will be actually really, really like strong. And then you have the conservatives who actually just did sort of the same thing. And then kind of like, kind of like um, they put all their eggs in the proverbial like political basket. We're going to have like a moral majority. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And that's how we're going to engage with the world. And the radical other guys are saying, wait, 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 no, 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 no. Let's do it a different way. So I'm listening to this podcast because I'm thinking, yeah, these guys have the solution because they are fully out on secularity. They believe that there is no space that is void of transcendence, right? Um, like schools, uh, government, all of those places are either either doxological or apostate, you know? And so they're like, I'm like, thinking, okay, I'm, I'm fully all in because that's my belief too. My belief is that institutions are just as subject to the cosmic powers of sin and death as individuals are. So I'm all in, right? Then I listened to a podcast and I think it was Catherine Pickstock who was talking about how she does church. And she says, the way that I do church is I sit by the well in my county parish for a few moments on a Sunday morning. And the rays of sunlight, you know, like they connect me with the transcendence um, of God. And, uh, and that's my church. And I listened to that and I thought, this is no solution at all. Because mm -hmm. my understanding is um, that the whole plausibility of the life of the gospel is predicated upon the kind of community um, that you're talking about, John Mark, where we actually love one another. And it doesn't work when you do, I mean, like, I'm not a, against house church per se, 
But there is a reason why house churches, they, they, they start off like with a bang, but then they kind of dissipate after a while. It's because I think the church is intended to be the place where we hold um, fellowship with one another, with people that we have to forgive, that we, are, we have to be different than, that we don't like and they don't like us. There's something about the agitation, the scratchiness and the rub of that, that actually is the embodied gospel. And you cannot experience it in any other way unless you run up against that, which is so hard, which is loving your neighbor. You know, um, and by loving your neighbor who is so different than you, you realize maybe I have never loved God at all. And so anyway, that's the question that I run up against. And that's how I see it. And that's the thing that I'm trying to agitate against. Here's the danger of post-secularity. You must not think that you can encounter the kingdom of God better in the world than in the church. You can experience the kingdom of God out there. But you cannot say that you cannot experience the kingdom of God here in church. And you cannot say that it's way better out there than it is here. Because in here, we're holding presence with one another. In here, the, you know, that our Lord Jesus Christ himself valorized the body, the body of Christ being together, the body, the body of the church being together and holding space with one another and being mediated, the presence of God mediated through the sacraments of communion and baptism and marriage and, and baby, whatever you want to believe about any one of those things. It's, this is demonstrably true. Um, Jesus has has willed that this that this frail little body of Christ would actually hold his presence and even to the liturgical acts that we do with one another. The things that seem so inconsequential, like passing out the program or passing the offering basket, even those things glitter with the vivid hope of Jesus because they're sacramental. And you cannot experience that. I'm sorry, Catherine Pickstack, you're way smarter than me. But in this, I have the foolishness of Christ. You cannot sit there at your county well in the parish and experience the sacraments in the same way that you can when you receive the body of Christ in a little wafer from a person that doesn't like you and that you don't like. I'm just, I'm sorry. So that's the thing that I'm always preaching about or I'm, I, I'm talking about. So there's me. That's what I would say. And I'll shut up now. I, I will say this. I've said this from our pulpit at least a half a dozen times in the last year, bricks and mortar matter. Okay. They matter to the life of the church. People want to, they want to poo poo building projects and all of that kind of stuff, but bricks and mortar matter to the life of the church and to the project of beauty making. Okay. Now, can we just for a second, just go backwards a little bit and blame the Protestant reformation for ushering in secularization. I'm telling you, once once the lines of desacralization were drawn, you know, the 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 concept that the finite cannot hold couldn't cannot hold the infinite, we lost so much. I mean, I've just been I uh just thinking like, well, well, first of all, um thank God the Pentecostals arrived in the early part of the 20th century, because that was, you know, like, like an uncouth, foolish, messy antidote to 400 years worth of non-mystical Christianity within the church, you know, and, um, 
I don't know. I, I, I don't know where to go with that. I just have, am so, uh, I feel like I'm going backwards a little bit. I feel like, uh, the first 48 years of my life have, have been, um, trying to live in, in, uh, peace with my evangelical charismatic faith that I was been given was given. And now I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, gosh, we've made it this far without using this word, but I'm going to go ahead and do it right now. I'm seeing the deconstructionism that's occurring. Um, it it is a direct result of the lack of the mystical that the reformed protestant church has been putting forth as the pathway to god the tyranny of the propositional yes and and i know that's very simplistic and it's a generalization that i'm sure should be critiqued but that's all i've got for right now cuz so many of the young people that i talk to have 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 not had a mystical experience didn't know that it was possible and they actually think that the main project that they're supposed to be working on in their life is managing their sin i mean you can only do that for so long before you abandon the project yeah it's not so hope it's not super hopeful no is it it's 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 impossible i mean to me and to, to me, without the power of the Holy Spirit, hardly anything is possible, you know. Yeah. But I mean, that's definitely the Holy Spirit is definitely not a silver bullet for our problems. So I want to make sure I say that on this podcast. But well, no, 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 no. Like, can I give some pushback? Because I think I think it it is, Andy, but <laughs> the the story, the story in which we have framed and limited what the Holy Spirit is, is an important factor. So Amen. when we invoke that word because of each of our backgrounds and context, this is something like my wife and I are always like wrestling with the language around what we talk about the Holy Spirit. Are we simply talking about the process of intuition? You know, because that in many ways was like the implied narrative was that when the Spirit is moving, we're discerning the Spirit, we're following the Spirit, what we are actually doing is just employing our the processes of intuition, right? Nobody said it like that. Or the Holy Spirit looks like a, a prophetic word or tongues, or it looks like a fire tunnel. Like the four of us know what that is. Probably 80% of my listeners don't, right? It looks like that. And so like, I feel what you're saying, like the recoil on that, Andy, is to be like, well, you know, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is the silver bullet, but what I would, what I've been wrestling with is like, no, 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 no. Like what I think you said from the very top, Andy, and, and one of the reasons why people are finding an attraction to the way you're framing the story is they felt like they had to leave the Christian story because their version that they experienced wasn't coherent. So what I'm trying to say and suggest is that the, when we invoke the name the Holy Spirit, when we invoke the third person of the triune God, we there is something I want to still hold on to about like the, the word of knowledge. And we've all had them happen to us in our lives in a way that 
I don't think I'm a Christian without those experiences. I have to be honest. I don't think I'm in the Christian story if I've never had someone just blast me like woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well situation, right? Where I, like, you should not have had any earthly knowledge of this situation in my life. And I know all of you guys have experienced that before. Some people listening have not, they have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm sorry, but I would not be following Jesus without those things, without seeing healings, without, because it did something to break down the larger frame. Like my subculture was inhabiting a particular story, but our subculture is part of a larger macro culture that we didn't get, we didn't choose to get plugged into or not. We were born into it. And part of that story that we were born into, this is what Ted is so good in describing is that secular story, which is like, all there is, is imminence. So what I'm trying to piece through Andy, and this is why I'm giving like, like uh, not pushback, but I, I know, I think you're hearing what I'm saying. Is that we can't simply say when we invoke the Holy Spirit that we're talking about that which doesn't like feels like it can't happen normally in the imminent frame. Right. So knowledge of the spirit and following the spirit would also be like, am I using my faculties of reason in accordance with the common grace provided to all people (laughs) to deduce what reality is actually like? And if I am, I'm following the spirit too. Mm -hmm. Is that making sense? Yeah. Like. So I, I know you believe that, in, but what I'm saying is like for charismatics and people have had charismatic and Pentecostal experiences, I don't want to bifurcate the work of the spirit and split it between that, which is like supernatural and that, which is natural. Because doing that already is playing by the rules of a story that we don't believe in. Well, and that's why I kind of put the PS on what I was saying, because I think that not only do we have good Pentecostal experiences, but we also have wounds from from yes. from leaders or from churches and groups who have who have misunderstood the metaphysics of all of this. And, and, and so I think uh, it, it's it's an interesting tightrope to walk because. Even even the way I communicate these things, there's a looseness to the way that I want to talk about any of this at all. Because as soon as somebody goes, this is the way this works, then I'm instantly suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, oh, here's the principle. Here's the spiritual principle that if you apply this to your life, your life will be so much better. And uh, Amy and I were just talking about it this morning, just the question of authority, like, like I, I love Sam Harris. I listen to him all the time. I think he's got a lot of issues that he can't, he can't really, um, I, I think, deal with. Uh, but but I but I love what he has to say along the lines of 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 how do you follow authority? And I think it's or or lines of authority. I think it's one of the big issues that Christians have, but especially charismatic Christians have. It's like. If there are 150 prophetic voices in the room and everybody is, is, is proclaiming to hear the voice of God and they all show up saying the, something different, what are we supposed to do? You know, And so I think that uh, here, this is what I've developed. I, I've, I've developed this thing where I only trust a hermeneutic 
that is under stress. I, I only trust a hermeneutic that is acknowledging its, its impotence and its, uh, and its lack of ability to really explain everything. If, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It acknowledges its limitations. Yeah. Acknowledges that it can't, it, it only sees in part. Right. And yeah. I, and I think that's where things have gotten real tricky for at least my movements is that I, I think we don't acknowledge that enough. I think there's something also though, that people are looking for in that movement, Andy, and it's something I, I want to get because Ted offered this really provoking question But when people that experience the collapse of the secular story are heading into a new post-secular age, which is a bit of uncharted waters for all of us, they are looking for something. And how are we going to navigate with those people when they come across paganism and they find beauty, a sense of transcendence and paganism, where they head down to the Amazon rainforest because they have the financial means to do so. This is like, you know, the spiritual journey for those that are upwardly mobile. And they go down and they spend time with the shaman. They take some ayahuasca and they have this like transformative experience. I'm like really not trying to be dismissive of those things. And even like who you were talking about, Ted, I like, I'm not dismissive of the fact that people sitting by a well and looking through a stained glass window or absorbing rays of sunshine are getting, can get a sense of awe and wonder and transcendence. I know you're not either. The question then becomes like, what's the hermeneutic key for reading those experiences and being able to say what is true and good and beautiful about these experiences and where do they need correction? So when the person comes to our church community or we engage with them and they're like, well, you know, on top of this, I am also like, or in substitute of this, maybe they even leave Christian community because they find that when they went down to the Amazon and they did ayahuasca, that their experience of transcendence that they had in that moment made them feel like, yeah, this might be more true than the Christian story. I think that is the thing that we are going to, it's not going to be people that are like, man, I read this Richard Dawkins book and he really convinced me to be a new atheist. I think that day is dead. Like it's gone. I'm not meeting Gen Z people, younger millennials that are like, boy, I really love Daniel Dennett and (laughs) Richard Dawkins. And I just think there is no, you know, like there I'm not meeting many reductive physicalists anymore. And I think of my friend, John Verveke, who is a non-theist. And John is leading really fascinating discussions with people like John himself left Christian community because of real hurts, because of a really awful Christian story that he was told. And yet he is to me like one of the prophetic voices in some sense of a post-secular age. And John and I, if you guys have listened to those conversations I've been having with John, the thing I keep coming back to with him is like, how do we even name a particular experience as beautiful? How do we name it as good? Like we have to make a choice about 
what our hermeneutic key is. And I like all of us are all, all unapologetically Christian in saying the hermeneutic key is Christ. But I think the difficulty is going to be, and I think this is what you were saying, right, Ted? The difficulty is going to be navigating those conversations with people without coming off as like colonialist, you know, because people are very, very suspicious of a meta narrative in the postmodern sense, a meta narrative yeah, that can coercive. explain it all. Yeah, or coercive. coercive. Yeah. Or like overly simplistic, like you're saying, Andy, where it's like, this thing explains it all. Here's your 10 steps. And, you know, so I have a, I have a question to that. Uh, yeah. And I'd be curious to hear what you three think, but I wonder if part of, I wonder if the answer then again, lies in the beauty thing, uh, the beauty narrative and our experience of it. Um, and uh, if part of what we need to do is we need to um so we need to begin to have like sort of a furnished imagination for the senses so so one of the things that i like feel like i'm coming up against and and this is i am just riffing here this is just like a, this is a new thought but i wonder if um so a person uh makes an adjudication on an experience uh whether that for them um is sort of like like in the hierarchy of kind of religious experiences sort of maybe at the top right um and i don't know if you guys agree with me on this or not um and by i i'm i'm being overly reductionistic with this but i wonder if the difference is between feeling and seeing so like um so like when a person says so here's my experience this is what i felt you know, um, I wonder if the thing that we ought to pastorally, prophetically do is move them toward, use the word intuition. There's this concept, theological concept called contuition, um, which I, I I don't know if you're, if you guys are aware of, but it's like, co, it. it's co-seeing. So you're seeing two things at the same time. So you're seeing the thing that is the thing, but then you're also seeing the thing beyond the thing. So it's like a, I think it came from St. Bonaventure or something like that, this idea of contuition. And I wonder if what we need to do is part of our discipleship. And by the way, I think you're absolutely right, Andy. I think the Protestant Reformation is responsible for the flattening of our religious experience so that it precludes or excludes the, the, uh, the mystic or the mystical and the mystery uh, because it was so propositional, but it also is responsible for the uh, dispolation of beauty too. You know, they thought beauty was just too subjective, too subject subject to the eye of the beholder, not helpful. Let's deal with certainties and absolutes because we are actually, I mean, like Reformation was a revolution, like in the context of this is going to be contra to something out there. So we need strength, you know, and this is too soft or this is too, you know, um, and then we've seen how, the, I mean, so the church used to be responsible for the beauty that the world experienced, you know, in the Western world, at least. Um, and then all of a sudden now it's responsible for kitsch, you know, or something or whatever, however you want to call it. Um, no, no offense to anyone out there. Um, but I'm just saying, I wonder if we ought to disciple people toward seeing beauty, not feeling the experience, contuition, not you know, like, 
Um, wow, I really felt that in my bones. I do a lot of work with young adults where I'm saying, hey, the purpose of your contemplative exercise is not to feel. Yeah. It's to be. Yes. Yes. I'm with you. <laughs> well, another another thing that, that I've been saying from our pulpit for, for a few months now is I, I'm saying pick a place and stay there for 10 years. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because it's fighting against this idea that, you know, you know, the, the worship memes joke, like if, if, if uh, complaining about, if complaining about community was an Olympic event and it's got Michael Phelps holding all 20,000 of his gold medals, right? It's like, that's, that's a, that's a funny critique of, of people who are insisting that they feel a certain way right away. Yeah. So that's, that's, those are the waters that we're swimming in as people who are trying to communicate reality. So um, I, I feel like what I'm trying to push people towards is uh, uh, maybe, maybe this is a, Maybe, maybe I really do believe that God is in control, contrary to what I say openly. Maybe there's this, this thing that I can, I'm haunted by and can't get rid of, which is that the redemptive purposes of God are, are, are always working. And, and when you, um, I, I mean, I mean, because what are we trying to solve? Is loneliness an issue in our society today? Yes, loneliness is an epidemic, and and part of the Christian story is that loneliness is not necessarily instantly healed, but it can be consoled. How is it consoled? Well, you start walking along with other people. Well, where do we do that? Oh, we do that in the bricks and mortar. Okay, so I'm going to go into my car and I'm going to drive over to the bricks and mortar so that my loneliness can be consoled. Well, once I get there, I don't like the way these people talk. I don't like the way these people sing. I don't like the way they're, you know. And so how do you confront a world where people are just used to having good feelings all the time, you say things like, you know what's even better? You know where the beauty lies? The beauty lies in you not trusting your intuition right now, not trusting your feeling right now, but going a distance with your neighbor in a place for a really long time and staying even though you will be wounded, you will be wounded. This is a, this is a really important uh, reality that I think we've been trying to protect people from. Like, come to our church because you will not be wounded here. You will be welcomed here. Mm -hmm. And we all know the opposite is mainly what's happening. And it's not because... I don't know why it is. It's just maybe it's just because we're people. But but I think it's kind of a new, it's a new project for an age where everything is disposable. You can live totally disembodied on your phone and you can binge 
your favorite TV show. And as soon as you're done with that, a new show will be ready and available for you to get your jollies off of, you know, like, and, and the, like the long, slow life of going to a dumb church where the music isn't any good, the preaching is mediocre and the potluck always has baked ziti. It's like, Nobody is going to sign up for that in their right mind, you know, but where we win, where we win is that if you stay in that place long enough, you run accidentally into these moments that are so sublime that you go, I don't know what was, what that was, but I think it might've been God. Like I, I've had, I've had those experiences two times in the last three months at our, at our church. And I'm just kind of like, I'm not smart enough to have orchestrated any of that. I'm just smart enough to know that when they happen, I let them happen and I receive them as they come. Uh, so I don't know if any of that's making any sense at all. No, it is. Is. I think it makes a ton of sense. You know, like for lack, I, I keep thinking about this analogy and I hope this is okay, but I can't think of a better one. But there's a statistic that uh, Gen Z um, is having, I, I don't know, this, I, it just makes sense to me, but Gen Z is having a lot less sex than millennials or Gen X. And late millennials had a lot less sex than the Gen X and the early millennials who came before them. Our purity talks is, are working. I know. <laughs> well, that's funny. There's there's a joke to be had in that. But the I, the conclusion is that, um, and I, I'm really not trying to be crass. Like there really is a point here. The conclusion is they all want to have real sex, but they will settle for something on their phone instead. And they'll settle long enough Right. And that the reason that's such a good analogy is because it's so clear. And I think we all understand that, first of all, even sex alone is not intimacy. And intimacy is what's going to fulfill you in the in the long run. Right. Mm -hmm. And then so you have this false intimacy that you get through your device that helps you curate what you believe is the perfect life. Yeah. Right. So we're in the business of curating our perfect version of life, but we are experientially deprived because we get enough of that immediate dopamine hit from the technology that it keeps us from going in deep. And I think that that's what Andy is saying here is like, we want the, gosh, I'm so sorry that I keep bringing up this analogy, but we want like a porn version of church where it's like, we go in and we get all the good feels, but we have, we don't have to be accountable for any sort of relationship. We can just walk in and get the Jesus feels and sing the songs. You know, none of those things on their own are bad. You know, I'm not putting any of that down, but we're not forced to push through the difficulties that will lead us to a life of deep intimacy with a community of people, you know? And like, I've, I've got a friend who's a, um, who's a therapist who's told me like his biggest issue with young men who want to be married is like, you don't spend, he says, you're so busy flipping through Tinder 
um, that luckily I came before Tinder, so I'd never had that experience, right? You're so busy scrolling and it's not even a hypersexual thing. It's just that they have so many options that they're like, there's just probably a better option. Kind of like they scroll through girls like we scroll through YouTube videos. We're like, this video is great. It's so great that I think the next one's better. So don't finish the first video and I scroll down to the next one. Well, we do that with spirituality, right? We do that with Christianity and our faith, I think, because... We've been offered a story that we're in control of, and we think that's what we want, when the truth is we actually want to be given to a story that we can't really curate for ourselves, yeah. you know? And the difficult thing is that, like, you don't get those immediate, well, sometimes you can, but you don't walk into church and get those immediate, like, um, wonderful, goosebumpy, exciting things. Or you might go a year where you don't get that. But yeah, if you, worse, like to or me, worse. John Mark. One of the things that are worse is when people have had that in a church and then they try to reproduce it over right. and over and yeah. over again. And it's like that ship has sailed. Yeah. And yet we're still stuck in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah or, and, and even uh, sorry to interrupt, but even sure. just like what you're saying there, John Mark, and what you're saying there, Paul, um, that's a casualty of the fact that we lost the mysticism. I mean, it's like we had the mystics not just the mysticism, they would help us make sense of that experience. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have the feels. In fact, I wrote a whole book about it. You know, uh, St. John of the Cross. Guess what? Feelings are like the mother's milk that we, we have to get weaned off of. You know, I mean, like, so we, not, we didn't just lose the mysticism. We also lost that whole tradition of people that tried to faithfully live after, hard after God, even though they were getting persecuted and tortured and like eaten by lions and all that stuff so we lost that too so i'm in total agreement with with what you're saying john mark and then with what you're saying to paul and i'm like man if we could just bring back some of these mystics we'd have a little bit of help come on you know yeah well, that's all well, i wanted you, to say so well if you break down the um the experience you're having like what you and i are talking right now through technology so technology is it's not all bad Right. But if you break it down, what's technically different in a virtual relationship with a person and, and like a, a, a more personal relationship? There's not a lot, except that I guess I, I keep trying not to continue with the porn analogy, but like it's just so to me so obvious. What's the real difference in having a relationship with porn and having a relationship with another person? Well, is that there is something in you that knows that there's more to that person than what you see. There's more to that person than what's right in front of you. And there's more to that, you know, but the other gets you the good feeling without the accountability that the other, except that there are feelings that you will have if you walk with that person for the long term that you just can't know you're going to have until you've given yourself fully to it. Mm. Does that make sense? Totally. You lose some of the suffering that is inherent. And when we try, I mean, this is, we'll get back to the very top of it. I know like people that listen and go, well, Paul, you're making everything fit your Christian narrative <laughs> nice and easily, but it's the slain lamb. Again, if that's the pattern of being, if that is what really, if Christ is really, truly enthroned as ruler of the cosmos, and that's what we're called to do, then it's, you can't have communion without a cross. 
And so like the porn analogy is great because it's not communion. There's no cross. Like there's suffering. There's a different kind of suffering. Like there's the suffering of sleeping around every weekend, right? With somebody different or at the first sign of, gosh, I really want to be sensitive. Let's talk about this, but like the first sign of trouble in your marriage is not an indication that you should get a divorce. Mm. And I like pastorally want to say that to anybody listening, my wife and I, our marriage has sucked at times. It's been really bad. She's like, I'm doing this in my, my home office and she's downstairs in her home office and I could call her up and this is nothing new to her. (laughs) It has been really, really rough at times, but we, Every, you know, we've been married almost 16 years. It'd be 16 years this summer. And we both say over and over, man, hon, aren't you glad that early on when it felt like this really, really hurts and it's not working that we chose to keep going? And we've gained so much. Yeah. The short term pain and experience of that, the cross in that has produced so much more beauty in our lives. I mean, like you want to talk about a Netflix parable that highlights this. Have you guys seen a marriage story with um, Adam driver and Scarlett Johansson? Have you not seen that Andy? You need to watch it. Okay. You talk about a cautionary parable and I am speaking about this, not just as maybe this is what you're talking about, Ted, with seeing the thing and seeing beyond the thing, like, I'm I'm talking about marriage, but just as John Mark is talking about pornography, we're talking about more than that, too. And Andy, you're talking about this, that the, there's something about Christian community where we're called to carry our cross together. And that's not the same as enduring like real abuse. Like right. there's a difference. And I want right. to be because lots of people listening, there are really, really bad. There are awful churches that are inhabiting a story that has nothing to do with a slain lamb enthroned as ruler of the cosmos. It's the same story. It's just got a different paint. Uh, uh, like it's just taking a Jesus paint job over the top of it. And it's the same as all the other cultural stories. And there's lots of hurt there. Like I'm, I know people have experienced that stuff. They've been abused. They've been sexually abused by people that have treated them as objects, pastors and all that. And I say, don't go to those churches, but we are talking about Andy is like, a marriage that isn't a hot date every day. It's like you're doing a lot of, I swear we do nothing. We've got three kids. I don't know what it's, how you guys did it in your house, Andy, with all your kids. It's always laundry, always like perpetual laundry. It never ends. As soon as it gets done, there's more laundry, <laughs> you know, like it's not easy. There's not another, like, I can't just get that next dopamine hit. Yeah, I have to like work through this. And that is I like this might sound dramatic. I just like I don't know how anybody makes it through marriage without the cross. That's that's right. I just don't. And um, the things to like make this actually come full circle in some sense is like. The secular story has broken down people realize its deficiency. They realize the absence of the cross has not produced a better world. <laughs> right. It hasn't. Um, but as new people search for new stories, 
in a world that offers them endless options to be their own hero in the story. Ted, we talked about this in our first conversation. Uh, how do we present the story of Jesus in this new era, a new epoch? And I think part of it is like what you're saying. It's like, Andy, it's, it's not just in what we say or having like really good social media presence or coming up with slick videos and podcasts. Like I'm trying to come up with slick videos and podcasts. I realize the irony in this, but it's like we tell it to the world in having a really hard, but good faithful marriage. Like maybe we tell it to the world in a really boring church, but people really love each other. And the big ZD, it's big ZD, but somebody made it with love. <laughs> you know, um, it's like the very lived presence of it in the world. Paul, can I can I just respond real quick? Uh, John Mark brought up that sign that we see everywhere: "Love is love, science is real." And this 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 goes back to the earlier part of our discussion. The creed. We were, talk, we, were we were talking about. Uh, John Mark was framing the love God with all your heart, love your neighbor, and we were kind of talking about how maybe the definition of loving God leads us to defining what love love is, you know? So I could take that love as love sign and I could, I could interpret it so many different ways. We're looking for interpretive tools, right? And what yes. you're saying is the cross is the interpretive tool that we actually all need. And uh, not very long ago, Amy and I are both, we're pushing 50. We're at 48 right now. Amy said this thing to me one, one time recently. She said, will you be able to love me when I stop being beautiful? And uh, I, I was caught off guard. I mean, I, I, what, what I realized was that we're getting older and, and this is going to sound like a Hallmark movie, but I believe because I have, um, followed Christ and I have leaned into what his definition of love is. And I have stayed with this woman for 27 years in our many ups and downs. Uh, rather than abandoning her when things got hard and went on a search for something younger and more quote beautiful staying the course what it has done for me and has set upon my eyes the ability to see a beauty that the secular imagination could not receive that's contuition that's contuition and and here's the thing that is not me enduring anything that it's it's like a reality it's like when I see my 48-year-old wife, my heart lights up. Like, like she is gorgeous to me. I mean, we have wrinkles. We have wrinkles around our eyes. And, you know, we went on a hike last week and it's like, it's not the same as when we were 28. It's, things are starting to work differently. And, and so I would say that that, if I was to put a carrot before anybody, like a carrot on the stick, what kind of bait would I use to persuade somebody 
to come over to this Christian story. It would be that. It would be that I I can see I can see beauty where I think well Sam Harris would just say that my decision was just very useful. He would Sam Harris would say that is a utilitarian decision that you're making staying this is a social contract that you're holding up. It may be. It, it is useful. It is useful. There's but a lot to of it, use- though, Andy. Like, what is the way that produces the ultimate good and utility in the world? It's not just is it social utility or is it principled. It's like no, like the hermeneutic of the cross tells us what is of ultimate benefit to us. What is ultimately useful, and it's our imaginations that conceive of other utilitarian, like other other visions of the good which we brush up against. So I brush up against when you've gotten that far into marriage and you're like, well, you know, I don't mean to throw this out so crassly, but um, like, well, maybe we should just have an affair, spice things up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like there's a utility in that, but it is dysfunctional. It's not the optimally ordered picture that God has intended for the cosmos. And so I miss it. Like, so Sam Harris, in some sense, could be right. Andy, you are thinking very utilitarian. It's just like, what is actually good? <laughs> what is actually in keeping with the optimal functioning and ordering of the cosmos? And the the radical Christian claim is it's the cross mm. that does that. And we don't see it right away. We don't see the utility of it right away. We have to live in Good Friday and we have to live in Holy Saturday and we have to live with the fact that, like, I mean, think of what the gospel, I mean, I just love the original ending of Mark's gospel before, not to get into, like, you know, textual criticism and stuff, but there was probably <clears throat> an addendum added later, and you'll see that footnote in your Bible in the final chapter. But Mark's original gospel, which is probably the earliest of the four, ends with the women being terrified because they went to the tomb and they saw that it was empty. And that was the end of that story. And it was so perfect because the people in Mark's contextual audience are dealing with persecution and suffering. And they're going, is this story going to end the way that we believe it's going to end? And you can only get that through eyes of faith. Maybe that's the seeing you're talking about, um, Ted, right? It's seeing like that in what you have right now with Amy right now, Andy is something like you're further along the journey. So Carrie and I look at you guys. And when we've spent time with you guys, you know, it was about this time last year and we see that and we see your kids. It's like, that's a vision. Like it's an eschatological vision (laughs) for us to go and be like, we want to lay claim to that picture of the future that is not yet for us, but we believe it is to come. Well, I wonder if the vision thing, is the better faculty that we ought to be teaching our people to look toward, Mm. not feeling. Mm. That's the faculty of vision. Mm. Um, And because vision actually, it's feeling, it's heart, it's also intellective. It's not just, I'm going to feel this thing and I'm going to feel my way through it. Um, But you have to see something. And then when your eyes are open, you're not just seeing your own thing. You're seeing other people too, and you're seeing the way that they that they apprehend, you know. And so I just wonder if 
part of the way that we help people adjudicate uh, the pagan uh, kind of like options out there is that we help them toward contuition, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then the other thing that I'm struck by as you're talking um, uh, is uh, how hungry people are for the vivifying power of resurrection in their lives, how much they want new life. They always want the new, you know. Um, and of course, we live in a materialistic, consumeristic society. So the new for us is primarily the devil's work, it's acquisition, you know. But people are like hopelessly inured to being attracted to the new, and they want the vivifying power of the resurrection, really. But that's what everybody wants. They want new life. You know, um, and I, what I hear you saying is you just don't get there until you die. You must die to have that life, you know? So the cross is helpful because the cross, um, the cross, having a cruciform life, having a life shaped by the cross, having a life where that is the frame, um, uh, is not shovels in despair. It's actually winged with resurrection and life, right? And so part of me wonders, like, hey, you want the new, you want the vivifying power of resurrection in your life. The only way you get there is you must be buried, you know. So anyway, that's what makes me think of. I love that. I love that teaching people to have vision rather than feel, feeling. Yep. I have some big thoughts about this. I. I've been reading uh, through the life of Abraham again. And I've been thinking about how uh, Abraham, you know, is the father of faith and he had faith and it was counted as righteousness. And I didn't, did I cut you off, Andy? No, no. Okay. You're good. He had faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And I thought, what did Abraham do? He was in a good place and God, a God he didn't even know, by the way you know, this mysterious God voice. Cause I think he was still probably at that time, Paul, you can speak to this. I think he was still, a, what, what, what do you call it? When you, you believe in multiple gods, I mean, he, was a, he was in a pagan. He, he was pagan. Yeah, he well, was and, pagan. and it actually says in Joshua that Terah, yeah. they, they, yeah. they worshiped other gods. Yeah. So I think he's a polytheist. And I think really the story of Abraham is figuring out which one of these voices is talking to me. I think in a lot of ways, and then you read through the whole, like when he meets Melchizedek is like, why did he like give 10% of his money? I think because Melchizedek was like, let me help you out a little bit. We're going to like clarify this. Cause I think Melchizedek was the priest of God most high. And I don't think it uses that the Bible uses that term until that point. So Abraham is just like hearing this voice and he's willing to walk out into the unknown because Ted, he can see something that he can't see. Right. And he's willing to forgo. I mean, like Abraham is wealthy. He's probably got all the things that a super wealthy person want. When he goes to Egypt, he's afraid that Pharaoh will see his wife. Well, how does he, how does Pharaoh know that he has a a wife? Well, it's because he's hobnobbing with all these like super wealthy people. Abraham is just like, right. But he has everything he wants and he hears this voice and he leaves looking for something that he doesn't know if he's going to find, you know? And when I hear you guys talking about, um, you know, church and the cross, like this is really what it is, right? That's really what dying is, is to like leave and sacrifice, 
right? We're talking about sacrifice, sacrificing the now for the later, sacrificing the lesser for the greater, sacrificing the little feeling for the something bigger that we don't fully know. Like I've been thinking about this, like they realize like we make the most important decisions in our life. Usually when we are the least capable of making those decisions, I chose who I was going to marry when I was young and dumb. I chose God. I chose my religion and my faith when I was young and dumb. I chose my career when I was young and dumb. You can't really go back. There's rarely a moment in your life, maybe one or two, but there's very few moments where you can rethink those decisions. Right. And I was like, and I remember talking to my mom about it. It's like, mom, it seems really unfair that God would force us to make the most important decisions in our life when we are the stupidest that we're ever going to be. Right. When we're the most unwise. Well, God must not care as much about those things as we do. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, we're sort of, I'm just rambling now, but I feel like I had a point though. It's like, we we have we have to learn how to see something that we can't simply see with our intellect and give ourselves to something that we don't know what the outcome is going to be like i didn't know what the outcome was going to be with my wife when i married her i had other friends who married other women who you know everything on the front end seemed super great and didn't work out well for them, but it worked out really well for me. And I ended up with something so much better than I ever could have imagined early on, but I never would have known there were no promises. The only promises were the promise I made to her and the one she made to me and we're weak human beings. And those promises aren't, you know what I'm saying? There are no guarantees and no promises, but it's sort of like, but that's the cross too, right? I'm so enamored with something you just said, John Mark. It's so simple. Abraham was following the voice and trying to figure out which voice among many of the voices was the voice to follow. And I'm so enamored by that because I think that is actually what I'm seeing happen in the cultural moment among people that have been told there is no voice. Yeah. And they're becoming aware that Mm -hmm. like, there is no neutral voiceless space and they're trying to figure out what the voice is to follow. Mm. And it is something like, that's the appeal of star Wars. It's the appeal of like the recent iteration of the new Dune movie. To me, that is like, that is going to be like the zeitgeist film of a post-secular age. There is something mysterious. There's the voice, use the voice, right? Like there is something mysterious about it. And I see people leaving the story that said there is no voice to follow at all, or the voice is your own, you know, and they're looking for the voice. And even Andy, like to get back to using the Holy Spirit, the word, the name, the description, Holy Spirit, and the way that we might be most accustomed to use it. You know, my wife and I have been saying, and I think I've texted you guys this before, like, we don't know what the right word is to say this, but at times... We, we both go, I miss the Holy Spirit. Like you were telling me about an experience and you've mentioned this already, like experience that is blindsided you a couple times in church. And you're like, I don't, I'm going to have to explain what's going on here to people. But it was like the voice mm-hmm. broke in mm-hmm. the noise. Mm-hmm. And there's, we've all experienced that. Um, I'm not, 
I don't know what else to say <laughs> about that, but there's something distinct about the voice of the spirit. And I think it's John Mark, it's like what you go hunting for in your music and what you lead other people into in your the experience that happens in your concerts. Like your concerts are an experience. They are. Like your records are an experience too. But there's something I've seen you live a couple of times. And there is a, there's an experience, like I can feel like a beckoning call. I can feel the voice of God in it. Um, and I'm hunt, like, I still hunt for it in everything. And it's not just intuitive. I, I'm, I'm really like, I'm really glad that I'm running out of words here. <laughs> Cause I think that means we're getting, we're working through something all together, the seeing the hearing the tasting, not reducing it just to intuition, but there's also something deeply intuitive about it. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm now I'm definitely rambling here, but the voice, um, we're looking for the voice to like draw us out, to bring us to where we're supposed to go, to give us the vision of the future that we can't see in the now. Yeah. And well, I, I'm very hopeful. I personally know maybe two dozen men and women right now who are pressing in to the thing that we don't quite have words for right now. But let me clumsily describe it for you. Uh, it, it will look like uh, it, it won't be powerful. It, 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 won't, it won't have much political efficacy. It will lack, uh, it, 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 it may be big in some instances. I think, I think Ted leads a particular house like this. You know, it'll, it'll be larger. It'll, it'll have a greater impact in its, in its city, but it won't always, there will be, there will be more hidden versions of this. But I think that from Azusa street, no, let's, let's go backwards from the age of the apostles into the early church to the rise of the Roman Catholic church into the reformation into Azusa street in 1906 or four or whatever in, into now, what I see rising is this uh, poet-priest who has the ability to make the space, the space where the third person of the triune God can move if she wants to. Sorry. <laughs> and then we'll have the wisdom to lead their people. And I'm back, back to the leader, the pastor, man, woman, whatever they may be, can lead their people into the life of the cross, not promising prosperity or healing, but has room for prosperity and healing. Yeah. Mm. Um, and is 
is maybe a little bit less dogmatic when it comes to issues of morality and systematic theology, but is still intensely orthodox. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Ted, you can build on that if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really hopeful picture to me, Andy. And um, I think in text messaging together, you've brought that up before. And I want, I actually really want to believe it. Maybe because you know, and you're experiencing this more you have a greater sense of hope for it. I guess I'm, I experience still a degree of not skepticism, but caution um, because I know history. Yeah. And I know the patterns of these things and we have these waves and how, as that happens, like I really want to, I want to affirm it. Like I believe that that's true. And I believe that there's a shift coming among Christian leaders who can hold on to these tensions well, but we also have to learn, like we can't do the thing that I think many people we've used the D word once. I have to use it twice here um, that have deconstructed out of those experiences and narratives and communities. We can't do what we so often do, which is to look back in the past and go, how did they get all that stuff wrong? We would never get it wrong either. And it's like, do you know, they just didn't have an internet connection. Right. Like, (laughs) like that's a big part of it. You think you would like have avoided all these doctrinal errors without the internet to like look up and compare theological voices. Like it's just so much easier now. So the thing I'm thinking about even multiple steps ahead of this is like, not that I doubt that that can't happen, Andy, but it's like, how do we keep it from those places that we saw in, you know, like, I think my own childhood church context where the founding pastors were Southern Baptists that ended up having this radical encounter with the spirit of God made manifest in the charismata. And by the time we hit the mid nineties, we're all like listening to Creflo dollar tell us that, you know, unless we have enough faith we're going to be broke the rest of our lives and if we have enough faith we can have bentley's so on the front end i know you're you know people and adam russell i think of adam as well that are working through how does that actually not happen again and maybe it's just an inevitable part of the cycle of human experience maybe it's israel's story over and over and we should fully expect that we're going to fail in some ways too and just <laughs> but I'd like to think, could we fail better? <laughs> you know, so yeah, that I mean, doesn't... That's, a good, that's a good way of saying it. I, I'm just not afraid of failure, Paul. Like, honestly, I feel like God has done so well with all of all of our failure over the years. And he's so bad at explaining himself. And he's so bad at letting misunderstandings of who he is run rampant. You know, I just, I don't see him interjecting himself or intervening in a way that cuts heresies off at the pass or cuts charismatic megalomaniacs off at the pass. Like it seems like God trusts himself to the degree that he's perfectly happy with letting all of these experiments go their distance. 
And it must be because he knows something that we don't quite know yet, which is, well, maybe Rob Bell got to it already. You know, love wins, you know, like <laughs> it's like I I don't I don't I I I appreciate your hesitation and your reluctant hopefulness. And and I I feel like Amy and I are working on a decade now of kind of like living in a dark place, but we had this woman, Ashley Pell, preaching from our pulpit last Sunday, and she just lowered the boom on me, man. She's like, you think that you're in a dark place and you think you've been asking God, I'm, I'm following you, the light of the world. Why am I, why is everything always dark? And she's said, but God has done everything in his power to get you to this dark place because you are the light of the world. And it just wrecked me, man. It just, it it was, it was a, it was a reprioritization for me. Like I am always trying to get myself to the lightest place possible. Like I want to get to where all of the revelation is all of the Holy Ghost activity is, and and now I'm realizing my my calling isn't that. It's to go to places and be okay with nothing making sense. So, I I find a lot of peace and grace and hope in that position. Quite quite honestly, man, Paul. I don't know why I feel like I'm supposed to say this, but. I feel like for most of my life, I was a um, holy grail person, right? Like, and I realized about a year ago, it's like this holy grail that I maybe, and maybe it's just because the last few years I've had this concept of the holy grail. I was like, I realized I've been looking for the holy grail my entire life. And there's a part of me that's incredibly dissatisfied all the time, right? And I realized, I was set free. I remember, I I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I remember writing this down and feeling so much freedom that I said, you know what? I am sacrificing the Holy Grail. I realized that there is no Holy Grail and the Holy Grail is stealing from my presence, my, um, from my present, maybe from my presence as well. But my sort of, my ideas of the future you know, like the, the future I want to build. And then my, um, what do you call it? When you nostalgize the past, you make the past out to be something more than it is. It's like, I realized have been stealing from me. And I think I became a lot happier when I realized like I can craft meaning on my own, meaning me and God can craft meaning together. And whatever we come up with is going to not be perfect. And it's going to be um, frustrating. Uh, but the process itself is going to be incredible, you know? And so like, I've sort of stopped looking for the perfect church. I've sort of stopped looking for the perfect situation. I just didn't, I've just decided to try and be as healthy as I can and enjoy the process. And sort of like, I, I don't know why I'm saying all this. I, I really don't know why I'm saying all this, but I've sort of decided that um, my faith is more like riding a surfboard and less like 
a car with a map in front of me. It's sort of like you do have to make decisions and wisdom does matter on a surfboard, but you're in a lot less. I think I'm in a lot less control than I think I am. Definitely. You know, and like who I become is based more around the sort of participatory actions that I engage in moment to moment and vision matters and ideas matter, but only as much as they point me in a direction and then things automatically change once I'm pointed in that direction. I think you've just described the function of grace. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. I even wanted to say all that. Like I just felt like I was supposed to say, I need need to hear it. I need to hear it. I'll just confess like, you know, my, my, uh, my own predispositions have been throughout my life to strive to the, the highest vision you know, like what the ideal, and there's a lot of good in that, right? I mean, that you, you have to move in some direction. So you might as well set your sights, <laughs> set hey, your sights towards. I, what, I, yeah, I know ahead, we're Andy. running long here, but I want to add one more thing to, to what John Mark just said about the Holy Grail. Cause I, I really appreciate that, that in, in just to flesh out what I think John Mark means is like us charismatics, we, we were all about the presence of the Lord. So it was always kind of like this, this, this point that we were always gunning towards, right? Uh, but I will say this, Amy, Amy Squires talks about, she, she often correlates life with God with, I, mean, I, I don't know why we keep going back to the sex analogy, but it's, it's just hard to get past sometimes. But uh, so, so while I don't want to live my life on this perpetual search for the Holy Grail, it there are these moments when you do stumble into the holy grail and it's really great so so like like using marriage as an analogy 99% of your marriage life is non-sexual it's 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 not orgasmic kids, yeah it's not orgasmic it's taking the kids to soccer practice it's paying the bills it's figuring out how to get the roof fixed it's all of those things all of those things matter, but the just the, the the joy of married life does present itself at times in ways that you will that you hope it will do more often. But man, when when everything is synchronous and it works out, it does do something to you as a person. It really helps you. It gives you, it gives you courage in your heart where maybe you were discouraged. You know, who, who sang the sexual healing song? There was, there was something to that. Like there's, there's a, this peace that you cannot deny about the encounter that we need as human beings. And so I, I think that the healthiest version of what we're talking about absolutely is you, I think doing what John Mark is talking about, like, God, I I so love to be in a church where we don't have to have the Holy Grail every single Sunday. It's like a gift. It's a gift that we give to people like, hey, you guys don't have to be super spiritual today. Hey, welcome to the grace of God. Nobody up here knows anything that they're talking about. We're just like you, right? Like, there's no gurus here. A few of us are paid to study the Bible a little bit and give you an interpretation as best as we can, right? So that's what we're normally doing. But man, 
when when there you have those moments of intersection between the the, the bride and the bridegroom they're special and i think that we want to make room for those things in our lives as well does that make sense beautiful i, yeah. I hope that doesn't sound no. like a refutation of what you were saying cool. john mark i just no 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 that's great let me use that let me use another analogy so as a as a performer like i'm a songwriter and i perform you sell tickets to a show and in your mind you're like i want all these people to have a meaningful night i want to play perfect i want the band to play perfect and you do everything within your power to plan for a perfect uh show but you also know if there was such a thing as a perfect show i would not be a part of this mm. Right. Is that like the, the, the feeling I know we're talking about feelings aren't bad. I know we've talked a lot about feelings, but the way you've, you've planned for the perfect show and then you walk out and do it and, and the planning points you in a direction, but it never guarantees the perfect show. But that's also like the most beautiful part about it. It's the little things that go wrong that make it incredible. And so like, I feel like with theology, with the church and like, it's like, I think it's important for us all to strive for what the spirit is saying in this moment, you know, but then it's sort of at the end, you, you know, you, you do all that. And then you walk out on the stage and all of that hopefully has pointed you in a direction and has created an opportunity for you. But then when you walk out there, it is what it is. And it's, it's beautiful every time because it's different every time and you don't know what's going to happen. And then something always goes wrong and then something always goes good. And your favorite shows are when something unexpected happened. I'll, just, I'll give you an example. We were playing in Dallas at this outdoor venue. And in the middle of the show, we got it started to rain. We kept playing through the rain, but then it started to dump. And they made us get off the stage because it was getting dangerous with us. I think there was some lightning and the wind and we're halfway through. And I was like, I feel, all these people came out and they're soaked. Well, it's connected to a restaurant. I was like, so we shoved all these people in the restaurant and I stood up at the other end of the restaurant and I played acoustic songs for the rest of the show. And I did a terrible job. I sang awful. I played awful. I couldn't even remember my songs. I literally, at one point, a guy, I was taking requests and I was like, I don't remember that song. So you have to help me. And I wasn't joking. And the crowd loved it. They were singing the songs. They were reminding me of the lyrics. One guy asked for a song. I was like, I don't know how to play Guns Napoleon on acoustic guitar. And a guy goes, look, I promise I can. I've done it multiple times. I swear if you, and so I pulled, his name is Ray. I pulled him up on the stage and gave him my guitar and we played a really slow. It was a little bit slow, but he played all the right chords. Like he played way better than I could version of the song and people loved it. I was like, nothing about that was cool. Nothing about that was okay. Nothing. I would have chosen none of that. But when I got to the end of the night, I was like, something happened with those people. Ray will never forget that. All those people will never forget that. I will never forget that. Right. And there are a lot of shows that I've forgotten over the years. Right. And I think like maybe what we're getting at here is like, what Andy's talking about, what you're talking about, it's like we're moving in this new area, like it's gonna be a mess. Yeah. But like yeah. the but the attempt is what matters because the attempt is exciting and it, the and God is in the attempt and the Holy Spirit is in the attempt and it's not gonna work. Like it's absolutely not gonna work because <laughs> it's not supposed to. It's like the attempt that matters, you know. 
And well, what does and, God and do with it, Abraham? Like, <laughs> you talk about Abraham. When he's when the covenant happens, it is God that actually walks through the heifer. You know, yeah. that gets that's, split. That's right. Two. That's right. It's he's the he's the blazing fire pot, right? Yeah. And I think that's the point of what you're saying, John Mark. And what you're saying, Andy, the problem with holy girl thinking is it is funded on our capacity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the problem with like having sort of a hopeful vision of what the church will be and kind of looking at all of this sort of the sigils of the past that have actually fallen flat on their faces, splat in the dirt. Um, there's a reason why in the Philippines, I think there is this a social activist Christian who said, I have a spiritual practice of human failure. So, so human failure for me is a way I live into intimacy with God in yeah. Christ, because then that yeah. reminds me that everything that I do is not funded on my own capacity, but yeah. funded instead on the expansive capacity of God, right? I mean, could it be that our mountaintop moments are just that we're always on top of the mountain? Could it be? that we are always at the Mount of trans- Transfiguration, but we just don't see it most of the time, which makes sense, right? Because sometimes we think something went actually terribly, and then we have someone come up to us and go, that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Or that show, you know, that you played John Mark, you know, um, like a person actually said, you know what, I've been on the fence, and right now I'm going to give my life completely to Jesus. And you're like, man, that was the worst show that we played on tour. I mean, isn't it true that we were reminded over and over and over again um, that, like, it's not ours to create. We're just invited up to the top. And then sometimes we get to see the, the burgeoning reality that Christ is actually way more glorious than then oftentimes we think he is, you know? Mm. So anyway, that's why I have hope. Because yes. <laughs> it doesn't depend on the 12 or 13 people that Andy knows in his orbit, in his swirl. You know, as much as I love Adam Russell, and I think he's a person that we need to follow and listen to, it doesn't depend on him ultimately. Mm. You know, it's not funded on his capacity. And that's sure. why I think the attempt matters. Because the attempt is a reaching toward and a participating in somebody else's capacity. And even your story with Ray, John Mark, you didn't make that happen on your own. You couldn't. You couldn't play Guns Napoleon on your own. You had to have some guy. I mean, what a risk, right? And here's the other thing. It, that's, that's, I mean, risk, attempt, surprise, all of that lives in the province of this new season. And I'm really glad. Yeah. Well, I, I want to. I want to say something real quick. Ted always gets me like this. <laughs> it always gets me fired up. But I, I had this revelation recently. You can cut all this out if you don't like it, Paul. But Ted just said, maybe we're always on the mountaintop. And I think that I'm coming to believe that that is 100% true. That we're always on the mountaintop. We just don't realize it. And, and maybe, maybe let me use a little bit different mountaintop analogy. I thought recently like, what do you have on the mountaintop that you don't have in the valley? On the mountaintop, you have, there's no food, there's no water, there's not a lot of relationship on the mountaintop, there's not a lot of shelter, it's cold on the mountaintop. All you have is an amazing view of the valley. What do you have on the mountaintop? Is You have the valley. The valley is what makes the mountaintop the mountaintop. And so when you're living in the valley, you have everything you need. You just don't have the perspective, right? 
when you're on the mountaintop, you realize like the valley is what I've been in love with all the time. I just need the mountaintop to remind me that the valley is what I'm like living for, right? Hmm. That's a good word. <laughs> That's a good word. I want to land it right around there just to say this doesn't happen without risk. Um, it doesn't happen without the spirit of adventure, the following of Abraham, the following of the voice to go to a land that you don't know where you're going. And I just like maybe want to wrap up by saying like, I want to just even practically encourage some people that are listening because there are everybody. I mean, I shared about my own church experience, you know, and I'm, I'm not happy about the fact that, you know, we went full on Creflo dollar in our church by the mid nineties, but you know what I'm really happy about? It's like my parents and other people ventured to build like a small little Christian school and church that I made like the best friends in my life with, you know, and there's a lot of broke, a lot of brokenness there, like horrible stuff, but so much goodness too. I just uncovered um, recently this, this video, my dad kind of helped build the Christian school. He was like one of the first principals at the Christian school I went to from kindergarten through 12th grade. And he only did it for a couple of years and went on to public school, but he also start the, started the sports program at the school. And I found this video and it's so funny to look back on now of like when they won, the school won their first Christian conference tournament and they were hoisting him up to cut down the nets and the whole community. It was like the most important moment in people's lives. And it's so funny when I look at it now, I go, it was so trivial. It's so trivial, right? Like Christian conference tournament, but it was so deeply meaningful to all those people. And I think about the absence of meaning if my dad hadn't risked and ventured to build something that that experience wouldn't have happened. And um, I'm just bringing that up to encourage a lot of people to think back on their stories, not just from the lens of everything that went wrong, but to really celebrate those people that risked and, and built something and even built things that had a lot of failures in them. Because I, maybe what you guys, I see in total, what you guys are getting at is part of our a hurt of our age is like our fear of commitment, our fear of the cross. Like we don't want the cross in our story because that's going to be painful and it comes with risk and the risk of the risk of rejection. You know, there's the very real risk of rejection to have, as Jesus did, you spent multiple years of your life with these closest friends and only one of them shows up when you're getting executed. And one of your other close ones denies that you, <laughs> they even know you like that's the risk of the story. And, um, maybe even if anybody, people that are listening and watching this on YouTube can feel some sort of sense of like, I think what you're saying, John, Mark, Andy, you're talking to, you guys are all coming back to this point. Like the faith is a risk a venture into the unknown <laughs> and it's going to cost and it's not free of pain. So if we're looking for something painless without a cross, I think maybe we're going to end up with this really horrible story at the end. Thank you guys. Anybody else have anything before we wrap up?
Well, I'm really, I, you know, one of the things I'm most thankful for in this conversation is not just, you know, at times we can talk about things and just simply share from all of your experiences, a recollection of past wisdom that we've accumulated. But I think one of the things I'm most appreciative today and when I talk to you guys is the working through of problems together, working through challenges. Like there's a, um, John Verveke calls it distributed cognition. And uh, I felt that happening. I felt the kindredness and of the spirit in our conversation. And I always do with you guys. And I hope others that are listening and watching feel the same. So thanks for your time, guys. Thank I'm so thankful for it. And I'd, I'd really like to do this maybe every few months, have a have a touchstone moment where we can kind of keep working through things together, not just telling people the things we've learned, but we're like working on it together. Cause I'm coming out today with a lot of things from you guys. So thank you. Welcome. Great to be here. Yes. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, guys. I want to thank you all for listening into today's conversation. Um, but I don't want you just to listen. I want you to participate. I want you to share your feedback, your perspectives. We learned through this process of distributed cognition together, this ironing, sharpening iron. So again, you can leave a comment on YouTube or you can participate in the discussion forum on my Patreon page. You'll find a link for that in the description of this video and podcast. This program is not possible without the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. And I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support. If you want to get involved in the Detox Patreon community, if you'd like to express appreciation for the work I'm doing, you can support my work on my Patreon page. But there's also additional things there like bonus Q&A episodes. We do monthly Zoom group meetings, all sorts of things that might be a benefit to you. And uh, so thank you again for considering supporting. If you're watching this via video, please, I encourage you, if you'd like and subscribe, it certainly helps other people um, uncover this channel if you think it's worthwhile. If you're listening on the audio only side of the podcast, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that certainly helps other people discover it. And of course, sharing it with others. I don't do advertisements, so sharing it with others is really the only way that new people are gonna uncover this uh, this podcast. So if you find it to be beneficial, maybe share it with somebody else, all right? Thanks again for listening. I look forward to reading your comments and to engaging with you. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.